Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to talk about a certain kind of movie scene. Okay. I know you've seen movies like this. I was trying to think of examples, and for some reason, the only really good one I could think of was the Brian De Palma Mission Impossible movie. But okay. there, there are tons of examples. So here's what the scene is. A character is having a, a realization about something that happened, and the realization takes the form of remembering something from earlier in the movie and suddenly zooming in on some detail in the background of the shot that was not noticed the first time around. So in the Brian De Palma Mission Impossible, uh, there's a scene where Tom Cruise is remembering scenes that happened earlier, but like zooming in on people in the background and being oh. like, oh, there were other agents there. There were agents there all along, which, yeah. which in the, the in the structure of the film, it is basically the character is remembering scenes that were already depicted in the film, yes. maybe with a zoom or something. Uh, but 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 now they have uh, they have additional information uh, re- regarding what they were looking at. They're able to think back and essentially remember a detail that they had overlooked. Yeah, and that that is often how memory is portrayed in fiction, right? There And there's this great kind of drama to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it was right in front of my eyes. It's right where I was looking, but it was, you know, I didn't realize it until now. It's like they, they posit that memory works like a camera where you can take a picture of a scene and then later go back and look at that picture again and pick out different details in the background of the picture that you didn't notice the first time. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's depending on this, like you said, this fallacy of of memory as a recording, yeah, as a recording that can be just replayed and then studied again for detail. The same kind of fallacy, uh, honestly, that is uh, that has been uh, uh, utilized in um, uh, remembering, quote unquote, remembering uh, ritualized satanic abuse and, oh, yeah. and other uh, such things. Yeah, all the the idea about re- recovered memory yeah. is a highly problematic concept. Um, but yeah, it's not just – what I want to emphasize today though because we, we've talked about problematic concepts of memory all the time about like the idea that you can retrieve information you didn't have before. Very, very doubtful. Um, but I want to talk about the idea of seeing itself because another thing that's involved in this movie scene where somebody takes a picture of what's in front of their eyes and then later they go back and zoom in on different elements is the idea that whatever is in front of your eyes – is recorded in some way because it you know it's apparent it's obvious that you have access to the information because you looked right at it and so what we want to talk about today is whether that's actually true and what it means for information to be obvious visually or otherwise and what it means to see and in doing so we we are going to discuss the invisible gorilla uh, <laughs> classic psychology experiment, but it, but but as we we look back at this uh, this particular experiment, it did make me rethink the idea of of invisibility, and it reminded me of something I read in a Stephen King novel. Uh, it's particularly the Eyes of the Dragon from 1984. Mm-hmm. Did, did you ever read this one? No, I didn't. Uh, it's been a long time. But Wait, is this one of the uh, one of the Gunslinger books? It's tied to all of that because it it, it takes place in kind of a, its own standalone fantasy world, and there is an evil magician in it uh, by the name of Flag. Oh, of course, of course. Randall Flag is the the the, 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 uh, 
the ever-present uh, uh, Stephen King uh, nemesis, right? Right. Uh, so there's a, this point, though, where the, the, uh, King is describing uh, the magical powers of Flag, and Flag has this ability to turn invisible, but it's it's less of a complete storybook or Lord of the Rings invisibility, and it has far more in common with what we're discussing today. So I'm going to read a quick quote. Invisibility was out of his reach, but by reciting a number of spells, it was possible to become dim. When one was dim and a servant approached along a passageway, one simply drew aside and stood still and let the servant pass. In most cases, the servant's eyes would drop to his own feet or suddenly find something interesting to look at on the ceiling. If one passed through a room, conversation would falter and people would look momentarily distressed as if all were having gas pains at the same time. Torches in wall sconces grew smoky. Candles sometimes blew out. It was necessary to actually hide when one was dim, only if one saw someone whom one knew well. For whether one was dim or not, these people almost always saw. Dimness was useful, but it was not invisibility. Oh, there's an almost exactly equivalent type of magical invisibility that's in um, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials oh, yeah. that uh, the witches in that make use of where it is a, it's a form of invisibility where it's not that they're not seen but they are not noticed. Yes. Um, so people like they'll enter a room they're not supposed to be in and people will glance up and notice them and then just look away. And this is key to what we're talking about today. What is the difference between seeing and noticing? What is the difference between uh, – between uh, the obvious and the unobvious. Right. And does does the idea of obviousness itself uh, introduce problematic misconceptions into our mind that, that cause us to not really understand how our own sight and, and recognition and memory works? So this story is going to begin with a very popular, well-known experiment. I guess – I'd guess a lot of you, maybe the majority of you out there have already seen this video by now. But if not, it's definitely worth it to pause the podcast right now and check it out before continuing. Uh, just search on the internet, quote, selective attention test and the video should come right up. Now, for all of you who have already seen it before or if you just came back from checking it out, a quick description of what's going on. It's a video where you've got six people. Three of them are wearing white shirts. Three are wearing black shirts. And they're moving around in a sort of circle, passing basketballs back and forth within their teams of the same colored shirts. And the video asks you to count how many times the players in the white shirts pass the ball. So it gives you a task. You've got a visual information recording task to keep you occupied. And then in the middle of the video, you might or might not notice something, which is – a person wearing a gorilla costume, and I love it because it's a straight-up <laughs> robot monster B-movie ape suit. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not. This is not 2001 A Space Odyssey. This no. is a store-bought gorilla costume, uh -huh. uh, which I love. Yeah, it walks right into the middle of the frame, like not, not in some obscure corner, but mm -hmm. right into the middle of the video you're watching, stands there in the middle of all the players. They, the, the person in the suit beats their chest, and then they walk away. And what's astonishing about this video is how many people do not see the gorilla or do not recall seeing the gorilla at all when they see the video for the first time. And it, it's a truly – Robert, I don't know if you've watched one of these videos, one of these types of videos and not seen the thing. But it is a truly 
unbelievable, eye-opening, mind-expanding experience to watch one of these videos for the first time, not see the gorilla or uh, the moonwalking bear, which I'll talk about in a second, <laughs> uh, or, or anything like that, and and then realize that you were looking right at it and not seeing it. And it, it really can shake your faith in the reliability of your own senses and attention because it's so obvious in the sense of the way we normally use the word obvious, right? It's I, The way I was trying to express it was like it'd be like watching a Michael Bay movie and not remembering having seen any explosions. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's difficult for me to look back on. I honestly can't remember how I responded to this video the first time I viewed it. Uh, but I but I have observed uh, the effects of similar ex- experiments in, in video and, and can certainly appreciate it. Maybe things a little less uh, obvious. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, we, you see videos where it's kind of like a, a prankster element where you have uh, – you switch out people while someone is, isn't looking and they don't notice. Oh, there's one of those in just a second yeah. I want to talk about. Yeah. So uh, – but, but, yeah, but then also once you've seen it, like once the gorilla has been pointed out to you, you cannot unsee the gorilla in this video. Yeah. The second time you watch it, it's just astonishing. It walks right into the middle of the frame. It's right there. It's a gorilla suit. I mean it, it feels really weird. To, to not have seen it the first time. Uh, and and the, the question is, well, how many people don't see it the first time? This variable can be altered, but I, I'll get to the number in a second. The, the video comes from an experiment first published in 1999 by Daniel J. Simons and Christopher F. Shabri called Gorillas in Our Midst. I think ah. that's a play on Gorillas in the Mist. There's, there are going to be a lot of punny titles uh, of yeah. studies in today's episode. Uh, Gorillas in Our Midst, Sustained Inattentional Blindness for Dynamic Events. And this was published in the journal Perception. And the experiment tested multiple different conditions, including doing the test with both a gorilla and a woman holding an umbrella instead, and then with like different uh, different difficulty levels of the task of counting the basketball passes based on whether the figures were transparent or solid. But basically, uh, averaged across conditions, the authors found that roughly half of observers don't notice anything unusual while they're trying to count basketball passes and something unexpected like a gorilla walks right in front of their eyes. Now, fun fact is we're entering into Ig Nobel Prize season, but the Invisible Gorilla was honored with an Ig Nobel Prize in 2004. So if you've heard of this uh, this study, you may have heard it in, in a number of different ways, but it's possible that you, you picked up on it uh, via Ig Nobel Prize coverage. Yeah, and th- this has become incredibly popular. So, I mean, this is one of those where this initial study, I bet a lot of you out there have already heard of, but there, there's going to be more interesting stuff to come. And there have been plenty of versions of the exact same tests that have been replicated in various ways. One of the best is a UK public service announcement about road safety, and it was a TV commercial that did pretty much the same thing. It asked viewers to count how many times a team of players wearing white shirts passed a ball while a team of players wearing black shirts were also passing a ball around on the screen. And in the middle of the action, a dude in a bear suit moonwalks through the middle of the game. (laughs) And then it asks you if you saw the bear and then it replays the clip. And finally, it tells you, look out for cyclists. (laughs) (laughs) True story. I legitimately did not see the bear the first time when I watched this. And I don't know if this is supposed to be the effect, but now I worry that I have run over cyclists in my car without noticing. I really hope not. 
Uh, well, I, I should hope not, Joe. And But if it did happen, I hope that uh, the specter of a moonwalking bear haunts you uh, <laughs> for it. Because, I mean, that's ultimately what the, the, the specter of the invisible gorilla or the moonwalking bear uh, is there for, to remind us how little we perceive while seeing, right? Uh, how much... Uh, how how much of our perception is flawed. Now, you could class this as a good thing or a bad thing or a mixed bag, as I guess I would. But we'll explore some of the different ways of interpreting these kind of results as the episode goes on. But yeah, the general principle uh, is now known as inattentional blindness. And the the basic idea is that when you're paying attention – to a particular object or task like counting basketball throws, you often fail to perceive an unexpected object right in front of your eyes, even if you're looking straight at it and in retrospect it seems completely obvious. And you would be astonished sometimes what you fail to notice when your attention is otherwise occupied. Yeah, this is one of those areas of human perception that really drives home how many of the details we think we have are just kind of filled in for us by our brain. You know, our perception of the world is not an uber-detailed painting of The Last Supper where we can, you know, accurately pinpoint how each disciple is dressed and what are their poses, where, where, where are they looking, where are they in position to, to Christ at the center of the table. We might think that we have this level of detail, uh, but as we're seeing here, we might very well fail to notice a full-grown gorilla amidst the disciples at the table. This is a really good point you make about art, actually, Robert, because I think – Think about how many famous paintings you have the feeling that you can picture perfectly in your head. Mm -hmm. Like picture, you know, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, one of those scenes, you know, Adam and God reaching right. out together. Picture The Last Supper or, mm -hmm. you know, any one of these famous paintings. If If you're like me, you have the feeling that like, okay, I can see it in my head right now. I'm picturing it. It's like mm -hmm. I have a photo of it. But if I were forced to like draw from that photo of in my memory, I couldn't do it. Yeah, or just to go right from left and tell me, you know, where everybody is, unless you've made a, an exercise of remembering it. Yeah. Uh, you're probably not going to be able to do it. Well, it emphasizes that there's something about the mind's eye that is a trick that can give you the feeling of being able to look at something with full detail and full frame in your mind. Uh, even though you think you're seeing it in your mind's eye right now, it uh, most of the detail actually doesn't exist. Yeah, but, it, you know, like you said, it's not – this is not all bad because obviously this allows you to know what the Last Supper is and you can identify it. You, yeah. you, you, but you know the, you know the basic idea – uh, even if you can't uh, reproduce it on paper. And likewise, as we're taking in the world around us, we can't, we can't be focused on everything at once. We have to focus in on particular aspects of our environment, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we can't be distracted by everything around it. Like if you're it, – it's in the same, uh, same way that if you're at a dinner party, you need to be able to focus on one conversation and shut out all the rest. We have yeah. to be able to focus our attention. Exactly, and, and that's one thing that's especially important for auditory attention because the ears do not have a physical focusing mechanism the same way the eyes do. You have directed vision where you, you zoom in on a single focal point and make that the center of your attention. With the ears, you can turn your head, but you can't really – zero in like you can with your eyes. Even though we might, again, think of our perception as a painting or as a as a as video footage where everything's complete and we can just go back and, 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 and look at the various details that we weren't focused on. No, if you weren't focusing on the detail, then it is, uh, it, it is likely blurry or lost or just filled in uh, uh, via memory. 
This uh, 1999 experiment by Simons and Chabry, it was not the first one to show that people are sometimes blind to objects or changes when their attention is focused on another task. Uh, one of the earliest major studies of this was by uh, Nicer and Becklin in Cognitive Psychology in 1975 called Selective Looking, Attending to Visually Specified Events. And this was a small study, 24 undergrads, and subjects were asked to look at two optically superimposed video screens. And they created this by the use of a half-silvered mirror. But basically, just, just imagine like projecting two different videos onto the same screen at the same time. Obviously, that would be difficult to follow, right? Right. Um, and the, these two screens are playing two different videotapes at the same time on top of each other. One was a ball-passing game where three people moved around and tossed a ball to each other. And the other one was ye old hand-slap game. Robert, did you ever play the hand-slap game? Is this where uh, somebody has hands uh, palm-facing up and the other – uh, palms facing down. Right. Yes. And, and the person like, with palms up tries to slap the hands yes, of the other person. Yes. And and you take turns trading off to see who can do it. And so the subjects in this experiment, they were asked to pay attention to only one of the two videos that were being played on top of each other from their point of view and to press a button every time something happened in one of those videos. Say if you're paying attention only to the hand slap video, to press a button every time a hand slap occurred. Or if you're paying attention only to the ball game video – Press a button every time the ball is passed. And the experiment was testing for several things. One, one of its focuses was to find out how attention selects what information to record when presented with multiple stimuli at the same time. Like the authors were dealing with one idea that, well, maybe the brain has some kind of post-perceptual filter that rejects or eliminates unwanted information. And instead, they were arguing that selective attention was a result of skilled perceiving, basically only recording the important stimuli in the first place, not recording everything and then weeding out what's unnecessary. And they did claim to find support for their view. But – one of the variables they tested in the experiment was whether people paying attention to one of the videos would notice weird stuff happening in the other superimposed video. So if you are – so the videos are playing right on top of each other. You're looking straight at both of them. But you're watching the hand slap game. Will you notice if the people passing the ball in the ball game throw the ball off screen and then keep pretending to pass without a ball? Or if the men playing the ball game all walk off screen and are replaced by women? Or if you're watching the ball game, will you notice if the players in the hand slap game stop to shake hands? Or stop slapping hands and start tossing a ball back and forth. And the authors found that the odd events in the secondary video were rarely noticed and reported at all. But there were some really curious observations. For example, one guy who is supposed to be counting throws in the ball game and ignoring the hand slap game uh, was in a condition where the players in the hand slap game stopped slapping and started throwing a ball back and forth. And he recorded this as a throw within the ball game, but then later insisted that he had not seen a ball being thrown by the hands in the second video. Huh. Now, this is all – but all this is like the hands – Throwing balls back and forth, it's not as uh, as as dramatic as the gorilla, 
Right. Like the gorilla really gives one pause. Well, right. Th- this was the earlier study because, and, and so part of what they were following up with with the gorilla study was, well, I mean, are people going to – is it is the same thing going to happen when you're not trying to manage watching, you know, these two right. things superimposed? Obviously, that was a very taxing mental task mm-hmm. and so you're, you're going to be really inattentive to extraneous stimuli. So there was another study from before, uh, before the gorilla study that was an experiment by Levin and Simons in 1998. And the way this works is you've got an experimenter standing on the street holding a map, so pretending to be somebody lost, and a pedestrian comes by. And the experimenter asks this random pedestrian for directions to somewhere, you know, tell me how to get to the nearest wig shop. Mm -hmm. Tell me how to get to the nearest gorilla suit shop. And then while the pedestrian is explaining how to get there, a couple of experimenters posing as construction workers pass between the participant and the experimenter carrying a big wooden door. And in the moment the door passes between them, the experimenter is switched out with a completely different person. (laughs) And the person giving directions often does not notice this. And you'd you'd wonder, okay, how often do they not notice the person that they're giving directions to being switched out? Like what, 5% of the time? No, the study found that about 50% of the pedestrians did not notice that they were suddenly talking to a completely different person and that the other one had disappeared. Oh, wow. Yeah, this video is also worth checking out, though, because it is – this one has kind of a candid camera, Uh uh, like, fun to it as well. Yeah, uh, and I think what's probably crucial here – is again that you're occupying the person's mind with a with an intention absorbing task. Giving directions is is mentally difficult, right? Because you're like having to try to picture places and translate those navigational. You know, you don't usually need to translate your own navigational uh, data into words, and mm-hmm. so doing that is difficult too. So while this person's mind is occupied trying to come up with how to get to the gorilla suit shop. They're actually incredibly inattentive to visual details right in front of their face, such as like what the person they're talking to looks like to the extent they don't even notice when the person becomes somebody else. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, more with the Invisible Gorilla. All right, we're back. Okay, so one thing I would immediately wonder about with something like the Gorilla Experiment is – is this only because people sort of have their guard down? You know, maybe are they are they oblivious to what would seem like really obvious visual data, such as a gorilla person in a gorilla suit walking in front of their eyes, or the person they're talking to suddenly transforming into a different person? Mm-hmm. Are they only not noticing these things because they're sort of in a very casual mode of thinking where they're not expecting anything strange to happen? And so, to vary the experiment, maybe we should ask. If you know to be on the lookout for one unexpected thing, does it help you notice other unexpected things? Like let's say you repeat the basketball gorilla suit experiment but including some subjects who are aware of what's going on. Maybe they've seen the first video already. They already know that a gorilla is going to show up. And if other unexpected things happen in that video, will they be more likely to notice them? And so Simons actually carried out an experiment to test for this uh, that was published in 2010 called Monkeying Around with the Gorillas in Our Midst. Uh, Familiarity with inattentional blindness task does not improve the detection of unexpected events. So many bad puns. And it's an ape, not a monkey, right? So that's true. Technically, work, but uh, uh, I mean, I'll overlook it. This is uh, this is not a this is not this is this is from a this is a perception study. It's not an an, an ape study. 
Uh, so, so Simon's created a second video and ran a new test. And this one starts in a similar way. You got the players in the white shirts and the players in the black shirts, and they're passing a ball between members of the same team in the same color shirts. And subjects are asked to count how many times the players in the white shirts pass the ball. But part of the way through the test, a few things happen. Once again, a gorilla walks into the middle of the frame, thumps its chest, walks away. But also, the curtain in the background changes color from red to orange. Also, one of the players in the black shirts just walks away and disappears from the game. And uh, and so the question is, if you know the gorilla's coming, do you are you more likely to notice the other things happening? And this one got me again. When I watched it, I did not notice the curtain color change or the player leaving the other team, though I did notice the gorilla. Yeah, I, I noticed the gorilla because I, I was expecting it and, right. and, and, and looking forward to it, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, uh, yeah, the background color did not register with me, and I certainly didn't notice uh, one random human, like, disappearing, just yeah. wandering off. Like, why would I be paying attention to the humans? Yeah, I don't yeah. care what, what they're doing. I'm, I, I'm I'm, on, I've got my eye on the ball. Yeah. <laughs> And so uh, obviously some of the subjects in the sample were already familiar with the original gorilla video. And so what were the results? Among subjects who had never heard of the original gorilla video, so who were brand new to this type of experiment, 56% noticed the gorilla. So a little more than half saw it. Uh, And this is roughly in line with what previous experiments have found. It's gone up and down with various conditions, but sometimes it's around half. Of course, people who'd heard of the original video noticed the gorilla 100% of the time because if you're looking for a gorilla, of course you're going to see one. Mm -hmm. But what about the new stuff? Well, uh, Simon's found that across both groups, 11% of subjects noticed the curtain change and 16% noticed the change in the number of players on the black team. And so the big question is if people were already familiar with the gorilla suit test, were they more likely to see the other stuff? And the answer is no. People who were expecting to see the gorilla were not any more likely to see the other stuff change. So if you're expecting to see one weird thing, you aren't necessarily any more likely to notice other weird or unexpected things right in front of your eyes. And Simons points out that this is sort of in line with a cognitive phenomenon known as satisfaction of search, which basically means that people are less likely to search for an additional target, uh, additional piece of target information once they've already found their original target information. An example of this might be, say, you've got a radiologist looking at imaging results and uh, they're looking for evidence of a lesion and then they find one. But if they find one, they might be less likely to notice other lesions or abnormalities normalities in the image because they've already gotten a hit. They already essentially hit the the information they needed and closed the case on the search instead of continuing the search for more information. Yeah, I found the gorilla. What what more would you ask of me? Yeah. And I got to say, the, the uh, I, one complication here is that the color of the curtain background, which is a digital background in the video, is a nauseating color anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you don't want to pay attention to it. Yeah, it's kind of this fake-looking color mm-hmm. or hue. It, it has this kind of early CGI appearance to it. Like, it's obviously been digitally manipulated, but in a way that not, – not in a way that I expect anything out of it. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if the same would be true if it was, like, literally photographed curtain in the background that changed colors. Mm. I don't know how you'd do that with moving players. You need some real special effects. Uh, but anyway, okay, so most of these tests, not the door one, but the other ones involve things like watching a video. And so you got to wonder, can this kind of inattentional blindness, the blindness to stuff that seems completely obvious happening right in front of your eyes while you're looking at it, 
can this be extrapolated to the real world? Because for one thing, like we were just talking about, I can see how there might be elements of, of a hypnotic effect or a kind of unreality created by the nature of visual media and screens. And it's possible maybe that doesn't apply to our normal attentional capacities for our environments. Yeah, because that, that last video, it basically looked like footage from the banana splits. Uh, <laughs> but our everyday reality, thankfully, does not look like an episode of the banana splits. Uh-huh. So do we really fail to notice things around us in the real world that we would that we would assume are completely obvious, like the gorilla in the video? Well, it would, it would seem so, right? Uh, I mean, this is the, the very sort of thing that magic and illusions have preyed upon since time out of mind. And not oh, only yeah. magicians and illusionists, but also pickpockets and yes. uh, various uh, con artists. Well, this is the very principle of misdirection. Yeah. You're not looking – you're looking at my magic hand that's doing some sort of elaborate flourish. You're not looking at the hand that's sneaking a pigeon out of my pants. You're looking at the uh, the attractive um, uh, magician's uh, uh, helper here. You're not mm-hmm. looking at uh, some key aspect of the, the, the mechanism for the trick that's being put into position. This is an important part of magic that I think a lot of people – don't realize. I think a lot of times when people are, are, are trying to picture what it is that stage magicians and pickpockets and all the, these kind of people do, it they they're thinking all about the skill of the tricking hand. Mm-hmm. You know, what, how how does it get into the pocket? How does it loosen the watch? How does it do? Whatever, but the, that's only part of the skill. Part of the real skill is making sure your eyes go in the other direction. You know, using the other hand or using your props or whatever mm-hmm. to keep your attention elsewhere. Yeah. Again, it's not a painting of a magician. It's not the the video footage of the magician. Now, this does make me wonder how video has changed magic. Uh, because on one hand, yeah, if if you have the video footage there, you can potentially rewind it and see exactly how the trick was done. You have a you you have the ability to do what the in person um, uh, spectator does not. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, you have magicians that perform in front of, uh, of a camera all the time. In fact, there are of course key examples of magicians who've manipulated the use of cameras mm-hmm. uh, for their benefit. I'm thinking particularly of it was, it was David Copperfield, I believe, right. that made the, uh, uh, the the Statue of Liberty disappear. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And that was of course a huge. Uh, a huge media sensation. I assume that was not sleight of hand. <laughs> well, not sleight of hand, but uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Uh, but I believe there was a – I think it's a This American Life episode where mm-hmm. they go into that and they discuss the magic of the trick and the secrecy of the trick. It's a fabulous story. But uh, it is certainly a case where where uh, where, where, where video is, is manipulated and used. Uh, or not so much the video footage itself, but just the, the nature of, of the media. Well, I mean it – just like the gorilla video, many illusions and stage tricks and pickpockets and all that, they can be astonishing how obvious what's happening is if you just know what to look for. Right. Like, uh, you know, sometimes pickpockets, professional pickpockets will do this thing where, you know, you watch them steal a bunch of their stuff, a bunch of somebody's stuff, and you're like, whoa, I didn't see that happen at all. How did it happen? And they might say, well, okay, just rewind the video and the whole time watch my right hand, don't look at my left hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or something like that, and then you'll you're like, oh, I see it. It's happening right there. I was looking at it the whole time, and it just did not register. Yeah, but I know we have another study here, Joe. Uh, please share with me. It's a groan-inducing title. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> it's a forehead slapper. It's called "You Do Not Talk About Fight Club If You Don't Notice Fight Club: <laughs> Inattentional Blindness for a Simulated Real World Assault in Eye Perception 2. In 2011, and this was by Shabri, Weinberger, Fontaine, and Simons. 
And uh, I'm not necessarily questioning the results, but I'm surprised this methodology got improved, got approved. This 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 sounds kind of this is a wild experiment. All right. Well, let's hear it. Okay. So uh, the the authors start by talking about there, there's this famous police incident that took place in Boston in 1995, where police were chasing four suspects from the scene of a shooting. And officers arriving on the scene of the pursuit caught a guy climbing a fence, and they pulled him down and started savagely beating him. However, it turned out the guy they were beating was not one of the suspects, not like the beating would have been okay if he were one Mm -hmm. of the suspects. But what they did not expect was that he was actually an undercover officer named Michael Cox who had also been in pursuit of the suspects. So this undercover officer, uh, Cox, he suffered bad injuries and there was an investigation into the beating. And one officer was known not to have been involved in the beating but to have run right past it in pursuit of the suspect. And the officer was named Kenneth Conley. And when Conley was brought before a grand jury to testify in the case, he claimed that though he had been right on the scene, he had not noticed Cox chasing the suspect or anything about the beating because he'd been focused on his pursuit. Mm. And you can kind of guess what suspicions this would raise, right? I mean, my reaction to this is, okay, it sounds like he's just lying to protect his fellow officers. You know, how could he have not noticed something so obvious? But the invisible gorilla makes instantly makes us question whether it's possible, right? It, 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 if, if we can see and yet not perceive the invisible gorilla, then what is so unlikely about this case? Right. And so this certainly isn't a comment about whether he was actually innocent or guilty. We're not making mm-hmm. the point that he was innocent. But the question is, is it plausible that you could m- miss in your environment something as totally obvious or seemingly totally obvious as like a chase or a suspect fleeing or a beating? Could you run by that and not see it? And so the authors here staged a test. They had subjects chase after an experimenter at jogging speed, paying attention to the experimenter they were following and counting how many times the experimenter did something, like touch their hat. And meanwhile, the experimenter would lead the subject right past the scene of a staged fight in which it appeared that two men were beating down a third man. And according to the results, in daytime trials, only 56% of subjects noticed the fight. So in broad daylight, more than 40% did not notice a fight happening. Uh, At night, only 35% of subjects noticed the fight. So almost two-thirds did not notice this violent event at all. And this is one of those that it's kind of hard to believe those results. But then again, I don't know. It's hard to believe in an intuitive way. But when I think to my own experience, there have been cases in my life where something was happening nearby that I really would think I should have noticed, but I just wasn't paying attention to it. Well, they're kind of built-in blinders, right? Yeah. How do we remember that which we did not perceive? Yeah. This is all great stuff to keep in mind, by the way. Uh, the next time someone says, how did you not notice X, Y, or Z? You just say, well, there's actually this, this uh, experiment about an invisible gorilla. <laughs> well, th- this is actually terrible because this, like, gives people – I mean, most of the time when you're paying attention th- to things, you should be noticing what seems obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, it does it does just make plausible that if your mind was otherwise occupied, you might not have seen something that happened right in front of your face and other people would assume should have been obvious to you. Yeah, like when people say, Robert Lamb, how can you be so oblivious? I will just I just say, look, invisible gorilla. That's all you need to know. Maybe I'll, I'll even wear a T-shirt with, with this excuse on it. 
we are not encouraging you to use this as an excuse in front of a grand jury or something no, no, like no. that. But uh, if we make an invisible gorilla T-shirt, you should buy it at our store, uh, which you can access at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Well, what if we make an invisible money T-shirt? Oh, yes, because that's actually the subject of our next uh, experiment here. It's not only invisible money, but an invisible money tree. Right. So this was a study by Ira E. Hyman Jr., Benjamin Sarb, and Brienne Wise Swanson. That's right. It was published in 2014, Frontiers in Psychology. Failure to see money on a tree, inattentional (laughs) blindness for objects that guided behavior. What's weirder, a person in a gorilla suit or money on a tree? I don't know. I mean, the gorilla is potentially dangerous, right? I mean, I don't know. Gorilla suit. Not on a video. Yeah, but... But the money tree, well, we'll get into it here. Okay. The authors began this study by invoking the experience of going on automatic pilot during a drive home from work. Interestingly enough, uh, this is an example that you brought up in our discussion on Julian Jaynes' uh, bicameral mind hypothesis, that the appearance of the unexplained uh, on a drive, say a clown standing on the on the, the, the shoulder of the road would summon a higher mode of cognition, uh, trans-hemispheric uh, thought that would be experienced as a form of a bicameral hallucination. Right. Yeah, that, that was Jane's theory was that uh, in his proposed model of what the bicameral human was like, they were unconscious most of the time just acting out of instinct and that when they would need to have a hallucination to tell them what to do would be when they encountered novel stimuli, something that was like an obstruction. Yes. So I just include that for trivia and for anybody playing the bicameral mind uh, drinking game at home. Um, <laughs> and for anybody that wants to buy our bicameral mind t-shirt uh, at stufftoblowyourmind.com, click on the store You're button at the plug-in. top. You're doing some plug-in. These are to... some, Robert, I would call these obvious plugs. <laughs> I'm trying to move some merch here. Uh, <laughs> so, but anyway, there's no bicameral mind in this study, but they brought up that example of autopilot. Well, specifically to the point that when you're on autopilot, you don't seem to be noticing or recording things. Right. It's, it's an, an example of inattentional blindness. Uh, so the, the authors here, they carried out two experiments. In one, they found that people on their cell phones during walks waited longer to avoid an obstacle and were less likely to be aware that they avoided one at all, so long as the obstacle in question wasn't another walker on the sidewalk. Okay, so they were they would be less likely to recall the fact that they had had to, like, go around an object. Right. So, But they still made it around the object. Yeah. Like, you know, like if it were a hole, they made it around the hole, uh, et cetera. Except it wouldn't be a hole. It would be something more, um, uh, you know, it would be something less obvious. Well, that's interesting. That seems to indicate that it's not that they don't see the object, but that that maybe there are different modes of seeing. They see it in one way, but they don't see it in another. They they see it with the part of the brain that guides the feet, right. but not the part of the brain that makes the memories. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you don't remember driving to work this morning, you still drove to work. Obviously, something worked, right? right. Something Things were functioning correctly. Uh, you saw, you just did not perceive, you didn't encode the memory. So what was the second experiment? Okay, in the second one, cell phone talkers and texters were less likely to show awareness of money on a tree over the pathway that they were walking on. (laughs) So, yeah, we have basically a literal money tree here, Uh the the stuff of dreams and myths, I imagine. Uh, So the key idea here in these experiences is that our brains can process environmental information that actually guides our behavior. Uh, without us necessarily perceiving it or focusing on it. So we're all wrapped up in our phones, uh, but we're still able to to get from point A to point B. 
Now, they point out there are a few different possible explanations for what's going on here. Okay. One is that people are aware of these obstacles presenting themselves, but then they forget them because okay. they're ultimately, you know, I didn't fall in the hole or trip over the the weird place in the sidewalk. Why would I remember the weird place in the sidewalk if it didn't result in injury or embarrassment? So information gets used for the moment and then just rejected. Right. There's only so much room in, in, the, in the old head cheese, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Then they add this, alternatively, driving without awareness may represent a form of inattentional blindness in which objects that pass through the focal point of vision do not enter awareness. So it's not that you code the information and then forget, but that you never see it at all in a way because you'd have to see it in some way in order to avoid it. Right, but not in a truly perceptional way. Yeah. So without attention, people may may fail to bind features into objects. And this would line up with the idea that visual information may follow two pathways, they say. There's the, the dorsal pathway, which uses visual information to guide action, and the ventral pathway, which leads to object recognition and conscious awareness. Oh, yeah, okay. Like there's a way of seeing things without recognizing them. Right. Sorry, I'm a little sidetracked because I'm thinking about – I'm trying to write my uh, Twilight Zone episode about the (laughs) the money tree. Like like what I'm thinking of is a guy gets a magic lamp and a genie comes out of it, but he only gets one wish. And his wish is that money grew on trees. And then what happens is all the trees of the world, their leaves get replaced with cash cash money. And then there's no more photosynthesis and then the earth dies. Okay, well, that went in an, an unexpected direction there. I thought it was just going to be about him not mo- noticing the money. Like, ah, oh, there was money on, on, on trees for one day, but I was too wrapped up in my phone. And then, uh, you know, he breaks his uh, yeah. spectacles. Oh, I was, <laughs> I was, I can't count basketball passes anymore because <laughs> I crushed my glasses. Time enough at last to watch all the moonwalking bear videos. <laughs> so I have to say that, that was a, this is a fun and insightful study, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really have a very funny title. <laughs> uh, what do you have for us next here, Joe? Oh, well, here's one. I don't I didn't know if this was worth mentioning, but this this was basically just a funny little letter mm-hmm. that that included a survey. Uh, but it's called And now for something completely different. <laughs> Inattentional blindness during a Monty Python's Flying Circus sketch, published in Eye Perception in 2015 by Richard Wiseman and Caroline Watt. Yes. So the sketch in question, did you watch this sketch? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'd seen it before. Yeah, well, I, I probably had seen it before, but I'd completely forgotten about it. Maybe it, maybe it, the cool thing is maybe it didn't register completely the first time I saw it. Uh-huh. But it's a scene where you have um, like four, is it three or four characters? It's in, they're supposedly like in a World War I trench. Yes. And they're talking sob stories about. Uh, playing the harmonica. Yeah, playing the harmonica, sob stories about life in the trench versus life back home. Mm-hmm. And then Terry Jones, uh, the. The, the Python member come like, runs on scene as a director and says, "Cut, cut, cut! Uh, we've got to get these other people out of here." And then he yeah, makes all extraneous characters <laughs> leave the scene immediately. And then that's when we realize that we have these characters in the background that are dressed in completely inappropriate uh, um, attire for the scene that is being presented. There's like a nun, an Orthodox priest, a Viking, uh, some other people. <laughs> Yeah, and they're just made to leave. And they're like, all right, let's do it again. Let's start from the top. Uh huh. So the authors of the study said, hey, actually, this scene is a great example of inattentional blindness because they're on screen the whole time. You can clearly see them, but people don't notice them. 
uh, you're just looking at like Eric Idle playing the harmonica uh-huh. and you don't see what's behind them, even though it's right in front of your eyes. And so they, they did a survey. They got 54 subjects. So they asked them if they had noticed any of these characters before the director runs on. Uh, 70.4% of participants failed to notice any of the incongruous characters. And then of those, 78.9% of participants expressed surprise that they had not spotted the characters. So Python making guerrilla videos of their own. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were always doing things to kind of mess with the audience and mess with your your perception. Yeah, um, experimental humor. <laughs> now, another interesting thing about this this particular study is that it, it was the work of, of Richard Wiseman, a psychology professor who uh, has been mentioned on the show before because he was involved uh, in, a, in a program called Laugh Lab that sought uh, to find the funniest joke across all cultures, regions, demographics, and countries. Uh-huh. And uh, and I'll read it for for you for everyone here if, if if everyone wants to hear it. What do you say, everybody? Well, let's hear it. Okay. All right. So here's the joke. Is it a knock knock joke? No, it's not. Two hunters are out in the woods when one of them collapses. He doesn't seem to be breathing, and his eyes are glazed. The other guy whips out his phone and calls the emergency services. He gasps. My friend is dead. What can I do? The operator says, "Calm down. I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead." There is a silence. Then a shot is heard. Back on the phone, the guy says, okay, now what? <laughs> I've heard it before, but that's a real good one. <laughs> it doesn't really have anything with, to do with what we're talking about here today, but here it is anyway. Can you remember what were the qualities that made that one the funniest? Did they determine that? They did, but I don't recall any of the, the details. You have to uh, – as I recall, there's an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about like a killing joke or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, that we go into it a little bit. And, of course, that ties back into Python, Python because yeah. they had that episode about a joke that was so funny that it would kill people dead. Uh, and it had to be translated into a language that the carrier did not understand in order for like safe handling to occur. All right, we're going to take uh, one more break, and then when we come back, we will jump right back into our discussion of the obvious. All right, we're back. So I think it's worth considering the question of what it means for something to be obvious. Because we, we've we been discussing the whole time the idea that if your attention is otherwise occupied, you miss things. You don't observe things that we would normally think are just obvious things to observe. Like how could you not have seen it? But maybe we've been thinking about these studies in the wrong way. Maybe that they're giving us the wrong idea. Not that the results of these studies are wrong, but that we're extrapolating the wrong implications from them. You know, one of my favorite gems uh, from uh, old creative writing courses I took. Uh, a lot uh, of gems come out of those. Oh, yeah. There's so many, like, nuggets of wisdom, right? Uh, but one of them was uh, the idea of something being a, quote, outrageous overstatement of the obvious. <laughs> um, and I, th- I think about this quite a bit. It was originally presented uh, in one of these classes as, as a criticism, as something to avoid. Uh, but I find myself busting it out as a, as a caveat uh, on various uh, tangents that I go on. Because that's the thing. The obvious often demands outrageous overstatement uh, or something close to it in order for us to really recognize the gorilla in the room with us. I mean, in, as far as writing goes, one of my – it makes me think of Garth Marenghi. Oh, yes. You know, blood, blood, <laughs> blood and bits of sick. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if uh, if Garth ever uh, really engaged in. I guess he uh, he did 
say, say some things at times that were they were definitely outrageous overstatements of the obvious. Um, like we're just really, you know, driving home a, a point to the point of uh, of, of nausea. Uh, but but uh, but but that's the, the thing. Like we think back to, to the gorilla. Was the was the gorilla truly obvious? And if you didn't notice the gorilla to begin with, then am I really being outrageous or overstating anything to shout there's a gorilla in our midst? Well, think about how often you get into the the, the frustrating situation of trying to convince somebody of something that you find totally obvious. Yeah. It's not obvious if you need to convince somebody of it or it's not obvious to them. It might be obvious to you. I mean, this this sort of undermines our concept of obviousness. Yeah, I find that the obvious is often invoked sometimes as a, as a, as a first step in a process of trying to convince you of something. Like I will say, obviously X and therefore – Right. Uh, why follows. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, a, it's a first premise that you will surely accept. Right. A uh, lot of times people don't. Yeah, like, it's to say, like if I were to say, look, obviously Stuff to Blow Your Mind is the best podcast on the net. <laughs> the net. But on, how great is it? The best podcast the in the net starring Sandra Bullock. But the best uh, podcast in the cybersphere or you know, uh, whatever, whatever term we're using for, for the internet. But, but uh, what I did there is I, I stated something that as obvious, even if it's not obvious or even necessarily true, though it is, um, and, then, and then like forced you to double down on what I said was obvious by asking you the next logical question. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean it, it serves the same kind of conversational purpose as the phrase of course. Yes. Which in most cases you should probably cut out even though I find myself saying it all the time. <laughs> I wish I did not say it at all. But anyway, I, I was actually reading a piece in Eon Magazine, one of our favorites, uh, by uh, Teppo Feline, just published this year in 2018, called The Fallacy of Obviousness, that talks about some of these studies on inattentional blindness. And uh, Teppo Feline is a professor of strategy at the University of Oxford's Said Business School, and he studies cognition, perception, and how these things relate to economics. And uh, he, he makes a couple of interesting points. So he begins by pointing out that the invisible gorilla study and others like it have led to this consensus in the cognitive sciences, perhaps best summarized by the Nobel Prize winning psychologist and behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman, who wrote that we are, quote, blind to the obvious and that we are also blind to our blindness. Oh. And, and I do think I agree that that is, that is sort of an emerging consensus in the cognitive sciences, like a lot of research – especially in the past couple decades or I mean probably you could even go back to the 1970s with Kahneman's work and all that but it's been it's been building up this steady uh, the steady sort of avalanche of research proving that the world is not how we naively perceive it and our perceptions are not as reliable as we think they are and that we're guided by bias and we've got blindness to all kinds of things. And uh, Feline takes issue with this, not arguing that the findings of the in inattentional blindness studies are wrong. He accepts them. But he, he thinks that they tell us something quite different about our brains than people usually think. So consider the in original invisible gorilla experiment. You're picturing this video in your mind. you got two teams of players wearing different colored shirts. They move around passing a ball within their own team. And then you've got subjects who are asked to count the number of passes made by players on the white team with the ball. 
And then in the middle of the video, you've got the gorilla that comes in in the middle of the game, beats its chest, walks back off screen. And in many or in some cases, most uh, most cases, observers fail to see the gorilla. Now, remember that the point of the experiment is not that people in gorilla suits are difficult to spot. It's that we don't notice things that seem completely obvious right in the middle of our visual field when our attention is closely occupied on another task like – counting basketball passes in a chaotic scene. So imagine you were asked to watch the clip without being given any instructions about what to pay attention to. Do you think you'd see the see the gorilla, Robert? Yes. Yeah, I absolutely think I would. I mean, it's clear that what prevents us from seeing it is the close attention we're paying to the ball and trying to count, you know, manage all of that visual information and and manage memory at the same time. It's our attention on this one isolated element that makes the gorilla invisible. And if you weren't doing that, it would definitely stand out. And Feline asks, what might you describe noticing in the scene if you hadn't been given any instructions? You might say two teams passing basketballs. You might be able to report what the team's shirts were. But but he points out that there are actually tons of details about the scene which are in fact completely, quote, obvious, meaning they're in plain view. There's nothing that obstructs it at all. And you could point out these details if you'd been asked to look for them, but which you would almost definitely not be able to point out unless you'd been asked to look for them. Like, what were the hair colors of all the players? How many steps did the players take? Uh, What color was the floor? How many basketball passes were there by both teams combined? All of this information is completely evident. There's nothing that obstructs it from our view, and yet it doesn't surprise us that people would fail to notice these things in the experiment. Missing the gorilla only surprises us because we instinctually assume that a person in a gorilla suit walking in front of our eyes is something we should happen to notice unprompted, and we don't understand why we didn't. And Feline calls this the fallacy of obviousness. Quote, There's a fallacy of obviousness because all kinds of things are readily evident in the clip, but missing any one of these things isn't a basis for saying that humans are blind. The experiment is set up in such a way that people miss the gorilla because they are distracted by counting basketball passes. Preoccupied with the task of counting, missing the gorilla is hardly surprising. In retrospect, the gorilla is prominent and obvious. So why is is it surprising to miss the gorilla? It, it's kind of hard to put into rigorous terms, isn't it? Like what it is about the gorilla that makes that something we think we should have noticed as opposed to any of the other myriad facts about the visual character of the video, right? Well, I, the gorilla is fun. The yeah. Gorilla, this this whole video is an, is an utter bore except for the presence of a gorilla suit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean that that's a hard – that seems so – again, that fact about what makes the gorilla obvious seems obvious to us. But imagine you were programming a computer to say, watch this video and tell me anything interesting that happened in it. Mm-hmm. Would it notice the gorilla? I kind of doubt it, right? I don't know. It's it's the most interesting thing about the video, though. It's I feel like the the uh, I feel like a computer would pick up on the gorilla's presence. It's front and center. How would it know the gorilla was interesting? It's just another mass of colors moving on the screen. I think it would be like uh, – it would be one of Asimov's laws of robotics. You know, <laughs> right. like don't kill your master uh, and, and gorillas always, are always inherently interesting. Right. Ape suits, yes. <laughs> Pay attention to that. 
But it's, I mean, it's obvious that we expect to notice the gorilla and don't expect to notice, say, the hair colors of the players because there's something inherently this like an unspoken rule about what's fun and relevant to pay attention to and gorillas are on that unspoken list. Uh, Fillion writes, quote, one needs to consider relevance or to put it differently, obvious to whom and for what purpose. Uh, later in his article, he, he talks for a long time about comparing human intellect and, and machine intelligence. And uh, he, he's got all kinds of issues with the general school of uh, highlighting human bias and blindness. I don't, I don't go fully along with his argument, though I do think he makes a good point about how our perception is not just – happening in neutral space, it's guided by theories of observation that are cognitive. Like he quotes Einstein in 1926, and Einstein says, quote, whether you can observe a thing or not depends on the theory which you use. It is the theory which decides what can be observed. And I think that's true. We, we've been talking about this on the show for a while, that, that seeing is not like a camera. Seeing is cognitive. You see not just with your eyes but with your brain. And if you don't have a schema for what to look for, you don't see it. Yeah, and this, this video illustrates that. Just one more quote from uh, Feline here. He says, quote, how we interpret the gorilla experiment might be seen as a kind of Rorschach test. How you interpret the finding depends on what you're looking for. On one hand, the test could indeed be said to prove blindness. But on the other, it shows that humans attend to visual scenes in directed fashion based on the questions and theories they have in mind or what they've been primed with. Now, I think that this in fact is not really – this is not really a – disagreement, I would say, even with the authors of these studies, right? Because that's exactly what they're showing. I mean, they're showing that when, you, when you've got your attention trained on one thing, you really miss other things you wouldn't expect to miss. Uh, but it's, I guess it's just a question of framing it as a positive or framing it as a negative. And he's saying, hey, you know, maybe, maybe we should think about the positive aspects of how selective you can make your attention when you want to. Yeah, it comes back to what we said earlier. You know, we need to be able to focus on things. Yeah, you need to be able to, uh, you know, do your homework. Uh, you know, do your research, whatever. Even if there's somebody in a gorilla costume in the room with you. Right. We've got limited processing capacity in the brain to devote to perception and recognition, especially in complicated perception tasks. And because of this limited capacity, if you were to wish that, you know, you had instead seen the gorilla, that would almost by necessity mean you would be undercutting your ability to count the basketball passes. And in our technological environment, you know, with personal devices, phones, computers, social media, messaging alerts and all that, I know for a fact that many people spend day after day constantly seeing the gorilla, constantly seeing the, you know, the moonwalking bear and finding themselves unable to concentrate on counting the basketball passes. The fact that they cannot help but notice the obvious thing walking through the frame is actually preventing them from paying attention to the things they care about and which bring greater meaning to their lives. Yeah, our lives have become just one big gorilla costume. Think about how often you're on the internet trying to get something done or trying to – or even just trying to have – a, a focused, pleasurable experience. Say, you know, you're trying to watch a movie or something, but your phone is blowing up with moonwalking bears. That's right. Uh, if anyone out there uh, is, has, finds this resonates with their own experience and you haven't listened to our episodes about, uh, uh, what was it, the Great Eyeball Wars, oh, yeah. I highly recommend going back and listening to those. I have another question about this, actually. I have not seen this tested anywhere. If anybody knows of a study, please send it our way. But 
I wonder if there's a correlation between people who fail to see the gorilla suit in the experiment and people who are actually better at focusing on work, projects and relationships and other meaningful pursuits while blocking out the constant chest-beating distractions coming at them through their connected devices. Are people who fail to see the gorilla in general people who are also better at focusing their attention on what they want? Hmm, that would be an interesting spin on the study for sure. And another great excuse for um, for a research facility to purchase a nice gorilla costume. Yes. Really, it's big gorilla costume that's benefiting from all of this work. If somebody does one of these studies again, I don't want just a regular gorilla suit. I want the full robot monster suit from the movie Robot <laughs> Monster. So it's the gorilla suit on bottom, but the fishbowl thing on top. Mm, okay. Or maybe, maybe they could mix it up with a pink or a white gorilla costume. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there are multiple ways you could go with this. So, yeah, I guess at the end here, I'm still wondering if our – uh, our, our way of thinking about perception and seeing and attention is is really hurt by this concept of obviousness. If we if we need to realize the flaws in the very idea of a thing being obvious, well, yeah, you can certainly argue that it does. And and one person that would agree with you or would have agreed with you uh, is a German philosopher Edmund Husserl, who lived eighteen fifty nine through nineteen thirty eight. Okay, well, what was uh, Husserl's idea? All right, so basically, like, here's a question. What is, what is the opposite of obviousness? A uh, thing being unexpected or hidden? Well, you could argue that it's astonishment. Hmm. And that's, uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of what an outrageous overstatement of the obvious attempts to do, right? Take the obvious and make it astonishing. Oh, okay, Sometimes yeah. it works and sometimes it, it falls flat. And generally that's <laughs> why one might discourage it is that it might fall flat. But what's so great about astonishment? Well, it's not the invisible gorilla but the gorilla made whole. It's the unavoidable gorilla. It is the gorilla itself. It is to not only see the gorilla, but to behold the gorilla and be changed by the experience. Whoa, okay. And in this, we touch on the realm of phenomenology. Okay. A philosophical approach that concentrates on the study of consciousness and the objects of direct experience. And it is the uh, largely the, the early 20th century uh, work of Edmund Husserl. Okay. So taking up the, the banner of phenomenology, you could argue that the only true way of knowing something is through astonishment. Every other form of knowing is based upon preconceived notions, worldview, accepted facts, uh, or, or assignments given to you before watching a YouTube video, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. To experience astonishment is to experience the thing in absence of, of all of this, free from the shackles of reason and language and even scientific reason. And as such, uh, uh, Husserl outlined a process called the phenomenological reduction, a meditative practice by which one liberates oneself from the obvious. And then this would uh, arguably allow us to view the world as a, quote, world of essences uh, free from any contamination. Hmm. I feel like I'm, I'm detecting a, a sort of connection that Husserl is making between the idea of obviousness and the idea of like the known. Yeah. Because known, uh, obvious versus astonishment is like known versus unknown. Yeah, and our, uh, our, our tendency to perhaps perceive the known as – not even perceive the known but to sort of discount the known. Like mm -hmm. the known is established ground mm -hmm. and we don't think about the ground we're standing on uh, – Unless, you know, we're high or we really stop to think about the ground. If someone says, whoa, stop what you're doing, look at the ground and really think about what you're standing on. It also brings to mind the Hindu concept of the ultimate underlying reality of, of Brahman. 
mm-hmm. uh, which we've touched on in the show before. You know, so, so it, it gets into kind of religious territory. The idea that there is a, you know, there is a world that we we kind of see, but we don't really see it. Like we've somehow lost, uh, or maybe we even never had this ability to actually perceive uh, objective reality. And uh, and this kind of leans into that idea a little bit as well. And yes, I think the invisible gorilla should be worshipped as a deity in the future. <laughs> well, I mean, if the real underlying reality is not in fact obvious, which in a way it isn't. I mean, when think it, of the person walking down the street on the cell phone. They, well, are they wrapped up in the real in the real reality? No, no, they're they're in a they're in a a. a tight bundle of suffocating consciousness, <laughs> you know, or they need to become less conscious and free themselves to experience the world. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I I mean, I think also about another way that like the fundamental reality is not obvious and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's science, right? Like our ways of discovering the laws that govern the world around us and understanding where things came from and what they're made of and how they work – most of that stuff is not obvious. You you have to put in place very strained, unusual methods of observing and methods of asking questions in order to find the answers to those kind of things. Indeed. And I'd love to come back and, and discuss uh, uh, more on this topic in the future. Yeah. It makes me think of uh, – there's a classic lecture by T.H. Huxley, you know, the On a Piece of Chalk – Oh, lecture, yes, yes. Uh, which uh, I, I've thought about wanting to maybe do an episode on sometime. It's this classic lecture that he, he gave back in the day to uh, I think a bunch of dock workers or somebody uh, that was just about like finding a piece of chalk that came out of the ground and saying, what is this and where did it come from? And it's this massive interesting way of interrogating the physical world around us through, through non-obvious means. Hmm. Once more, the uh, invisible gorilla made visible. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode. Uh, as always, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find uh, all the podcast episodes uh, that we've put out over the years uh, as well as blog posts and what have you. Links out to our various social media accounts. There's also a tab at the top of the page for our store. You can click there and check out all sorts of cool swag. You like our, our snazzy new logo? Get it on a T-shirt, a tote bag, a pillow, uh, an a iPhone. Pillow. Yeah, you can get a pillow, a nice throw pillow. Uh, if you're one of those people who, and I know we have a lot of listeners like this, who listen to us as you go to sleep, well then, hey, what's better than a stuff to blow your mind pillow? You got to have a pillow with words on it. You know, that's how you know you have a real house. <laughs> no, but you can get just our logo without words on it. It's oh, just okay. the logo. That's, that's, that's one thing we insisted on for our swag is that I, sometimes it's nice to flash the logo, but sometimes it's nice to just wink at everyone, let you know, like, here's this cool logo. What does it mean? Well, you have to ask me about it. Here's what I recommend. You should get pillows from our merch store that have our designs on them and then use them to sop up spills in your kitchen. No, I don't know if they're checked out for that, Joe. Uh, but there's a lot of cool swag. Check it out. Uh, again, the store tab at the top of our homepage at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. It's a great way to support the show. And if you want to support the show without spending any money, uh, the best way to do it is to rate and review Stuff to Blow Your Mind at any website that gives you the power to do so. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams, and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.